What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's guest on the show is Ali Webb. Ali is an entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, podcast host, and the co-founder of Drybar, a chain of salons that solely provides a hairstyling service known as Blowouts. She's also a founder of multiple other companies such as Squeeze and most recently Beckett & Quill. In 2010, Ali opened the first dry bar in Brentwood, California. Over a decade later and 150 plus locations across the country, dry bar has exploded into a nationally recognized and highly sought after brand. We spoke with Ali about what her childhood was like growing up in South Florida, where she gets her obsession with hair, the story of how dry bar came about, how she approaches fear and uncertainty, what it was like to transition out of her leadership role at the company, what she's working on now, and much more. Here we go. I grew up in South Florida, so you know the the weather was bad. It was humid, and my hair is naturally curly, so it was a bad combination. And you know, I was like, I was like a pretty chill little kid. My my brother Michael Landa, who's my business partner, he was always the kind of overachiever in the family, and I was kind of always in like the background. Like I never got in trouble. I was really like you know, kind of did what I was told, didn't cause a lot of problems. Michael got in trouble all the time. Him and my dad were always fighting and he was just, Michael always thought he was like smarter than my parents and everybody. So he was, I don't, I feel like depending on the age, it's like, did you guys ever watch Family Ties? You remember that Mm -hmm. show? Mm -hmm. The Alex P. Keaton, that was like my brother, Mm -hmm. you know, very overachiever. And I was very like, you know, just kind of, you know, as my parents would have described me back then as like a wallflower, but it's funny because I'm not like that now yeah. at all. But I was, you know, I think I was kind of in my brother's shadow. And right. But, you know, I bring up the hair thing because it really was a thing for me as a kid. I really didn't like my hair. And it really, it wasn't even that I just didn't like it. It's like I didn't know how to deal with it because I was like just frizzy and big. And it was like, I could just leave it curly, which, you know, now I've I've come to love my curls more. But then it was like, I was like, how do, how do women make their, how do women's hair not look like this? Like, and I didn't know how to do it. And I was always kind of trying to figure it out. And I used to beg my mom to blow up my hair and I tried doing it and it was always frizzy. And I just was like really kind of enamored with hair. I think because my own was so unmanageable that that just was like, I mean, it's just so funny looking back because it was just that thing that was like, you know, I was just this like nut that I was trying to crack for Mm. so many years, Mm -hmm. you know, which eventually led me to beauty school and (laughs) starting to do hair professionally. And obviously, you know, eventually. Did did anybody make fun of you or anything for having curly hair or? No, it was my own thing. You know, it was my own. I don't think anybody, it's like everybody had, I mean, I also, you know, I was born in 1975. So I was in high school and I graduated high school in 1993. And you know, that was like in the 80s is like big hair. You remember yeah. like the big bangs and all mm-hmm. of that? I mean, so it wasn't even like it was bad. I just, I didn't like it and I didn't feel put together when I would see like girls with like, you know, and I know I'm talking to two guys that this might be lost on, but for your audience, like, you know, when, when, when someone's hair was like really polished and blown out, like really nice, I loved that and I wanted that. I mean, as as women, which of course you guys can appreciate, we kind of want what we don't have and yeah. like grass mm-hmm. is always greener and all that stuff. And so like I want hair. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, general. That's what I want See, now. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, no, it wasn't that I was getting made fun of or anything. I just personally it some it was something that bugged me about right. myself that right. I wanted to figure out. And yeah. I, you know, I mean fast forward to going to beauty school after 
doing a bunch of other stuff, I was like, this is what I was always meant to be, mm-hmm. to would do. You, would you notice, like, other women that had, like, similar, like, hair totally. situations and just wonder, like, I wonder how they feel about their hair? Like, what? They, yeah. I, it was interesting. I was listening to a podcast today and someone was talking about silent suffering and, like, yeah. s- sort of in a way where, like, you know, identifying, I guess, business opportunities that people aren't explicit about, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's sort of, you know, mm-hmm. subconscious. It's like, you wonder like, you know, what are people thinking about this particular situation that really is bothering me? Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of that with like, you know, especially like living in LA and it's like, we're there, you know, it's like everybody's very body conscious and, you know, so yeah, I'm sure I, I well, obviously we, we, we know the answer to that question because dry bar was such a hit, you know, it was like, I remember talking to my brother about it, who his wife has naturally straight hair, grows out of her head straight. It was like the girls I hated in high school who had hair like that. And he, when we first started talking about this idea, he was like, I don't understand. Can't women blow out their hair themselves? I'm like, well, some can, but most can't. And, you know, it was like I knew – I had a feeling that I wasn't alone in my like mm-hmm. – annoyance with my hair. And, you know, and as it turns out, women who have straight hair want, you know, curls Curls. and volume and women who have curly hair want straight and sleek more or less. And so, you know, it turns out that this thing is something that is important to women. And what we learned, you know, through growing dry bar was like women just felt better when their hair looked really good. And whatever good means is Mm -hmm. like subjective and, you know, it's different for everybody, but it was like this, it's like, what I realized, which I don't think I realized pre-dry bar, was like there is this like confidence that women would get from having great hair, which I think I instinctively knew. And it was probably what, you know, ultimately led me to dry bar. And and the whole thing with my hair was like I felt more put together right. when I was like happy with my hair. It was like putting on a good outfit or having your makeup done, like a nice suit, whatever it is. Yep. And that we found out very quickly that that was a thing that women were really drawn to with dry bars. Like they wouldn't go to a board meeting without a blowout or a job interview or a date or whatever it was. They just had this extra right. kind of layer of confidence that they would get from great hair. Al, you talk about your brother kind of always being like, you know, the smart one or thinking that he's smarter than everyone. And you're kind of just <laughs> the, I assume you were more. I could be wrong, but more introverted, at least in your family. Yeah, uh, as a kid, yeah. When did you when did you realize like this isn't necessarily like me? Like I'm not necessarily the quiet, introverted person. Like, sure, like Michael can be as loud as he wants to be and he could be as smart as he wants to be, but I'm also that way. You yeah. Know? And I also want to kind of come out of my shell. Well, I mean, I think it was, you know, Michael, it was just, you know, Michael's like superpower and strength is like he's he's he is a really smart, talented business guy with great instincts and what what but you know taking it back you know before dry bar michael and i had actually partnered in another business nicole miller's like when we both thought we wanted to work in fashion and he was i was basically running these retail operations and he was kind of handling the back end but it really wasn't what either one of us want to be doing with our lives and very long story short, we it didn't work out and we were both very unhappy. And it was a really good learning though for us. And I mean, like right. after that experience, my parents were like, you guys definitely can never work together again. <laughs> and they were like, are you out of your minds when we told them we were going back into business with Drybar? But that experience really taught us like what not to do and how to get along better. And, you know, 
to answer your question, I mean, with dry bar, I knew so much about hair and blowouts in this world that I was very like armed with a lot of right. information and knowledge that Michael didn't have. And, you know, he knew a lot about like leases and negotiating terms on things. And like, the, you know, I, I don't, I will never be a person that is interested or cares or wants to deal with like spreadsheets or financials. It's just not my thing. It doesn't get me excited and whatever. And, and it, you know, it does for my brother. But I think the the level setting of like, hey, this this business doesn't work without my knowledge was like, you know, it really leveled the playing right. field for us. And I think that that enabled me to start coming out of my shell sure. and having more confidence in myself because I wasn't the overachiever and like the quote unquote smart one, but I yet had this like what would be the biz- biggest success of our life idea. And, you know, we, Michael very quickly realized that. And so the relationship, you know, was, was really great because of that. And, and it was like in those first couple of years that I really started to like kind of flex that muscle and come out of my shell. And, you know, I, I I mean, I've talked about this a lot that I, when we first put our, like had our first board together after we had raised a lot of money, I I remember sitting and now I was in a room with like a bunch of people like Michael, you know, these like private equity guys and they were all like Stanford and Harvard graduates and like I didn't even go to college. And I did feel really intimidated in those early meetings. And then I used to like text my brother under the table like questions because I was afraid to ask them out loud because I was afraid I wouldn't, it would be stupid or something. And my brother's response was always like, that's a great question. You should ask it. And you know, little by little, like through lots of things confidence. like that, I built the confidence. And then I started to realize like, you know, again, this this little idea that I had and this little thing that I thought would be great turned into this massive success. And that, you know, really propelled me forward and gave me confidence. And, and you know, what I lacked in, ed, you know, traditional education, I, I really made up for in like on-the-job training. And I yeah, learned right. so much over the last 11 years building building dry bar. When you were younger, um, was were there any people around you, perhaps it was family, friends, or friends of friends that were entrepreneurs where My you parents. saw them? Your yeah. parents, yeah. Where yeah. you like kind of saw that early and it was a possibility for you in terms of your future? Yeah, I mean, what's, what's interesting is that I didn't realize, you know, I think all, when I think back of my like, you know, my growing up and all the jobs I had like in my 20s, I think they all like, very uniquely prepared me for where I ended up. But yeah, my parents were entrepreneurs. They had their own business and it was called it was called Flips and it was like a little old lady schmata clothing stores. And it was actually pretty brilliant because it was like pre, you know, I don't know if you've heard of like um, Chico's, but mm-hmm. Chico's is like, you know, it's a pretty well-known like older lady clothing store, <laughs> which is really what my parents' store was, but not quite as nice. And But pre-Chico's, you know, the only place that women had to shop, older women, was like department stores. Mm -hmm. And my parents very smartly realized if they were to open Flips, was my dad's nickname, and my dad's dad had been in the Schmata business too, they realized if they opened these little flip stores in these, basically these retail, these like shopping centers, strip malls in South Florida, which is where, you know, Mm -hmm. we were living, which had like the bagel place and the dry cleaner and a little grocery store and a Chinese, like everything that these women wanted to do. And the little trolley would take them over from the senior citizen center. Like that's what Del Rey and Boca was like. So my parents opened this store. It, you know, it was a huge success. And my dad, which again, all of these lessons definitely like sunk in as a kid that I didn't realize they were. But my dad used to put like chairs at the front of the store for like the like the little old men, the husbands to sit, and right. he'd bring them coffee and orange juice mm. and the newspaper and right. bagels, so they would feel comfortable and they would be happy. And the longer they stayed chill, the longer their 
wives could shop, the more money they'd spend. It was genius, you know. Very smart. And you know, but and my parents also had this incredible, you know, bend over backwards for the customer. The customer's king, and you know, as you know, like you know, older people tend to be a little bit crankier and crotchety <laughs> and whatever. And and they were very much like that. But my and my mom, who was really more running the store, she was so patient with them and she was so kind to them. And I always was like, Mom, they're such assholes to you. Like, why are you so nice to them? And it was really like a lesson that it was like annoying to me at the time. But I remember her saying like, these people are paying our bills. This is how we can afford the life we have. It doesn't matter. It's not personal. You know, you don't take it personally. And, and she, you know, and so, so there was like a million of those lessons I learned because Michael and I worked at the store. We used to like ticket the clothes and I personally liked working at the cash register, probably <laughs> taking the money. And I, you know, it'd be like, it was so busy that there'd be like a line and like somebody would be folding and somebody would be taking the tickets apart and someone would be ringing. You know, my parents had like an old fashioned register. I mean, this is oh, like yeah. 40 years ago. I don't know. Um, so yeah, that was like my first, like I was, I was, I grew up in that world, you know, of like learning customer service. I mean, the one thing I don't, I didn't learn from my parents, which I learned later in life from my ex-husband was like the branding. My parents did not pay attention like to the branding, the experience, the customer service, that was all there. You know, everything else, I mean, they thought we were out of our minds when they, we told them it was going to cost like half a million dollars to build a dry bar. They're like, what? (laughs) You know? But uh, but yeah, I learned very early on, and that was just like that was my childhood watching mm-hmm. my parents operate a business, and, and they were very successful at it. When you were doing that in those days, and you know, manning the cash register, and you're in the store, did you ever think, huh, I really like this? Maybe I want to do this for when I grow up, right? Yeah. I mean, was that a thought that you had? You know, I don't really think it was. Right. I don't think I ever thought about like being an entrepreneur or having my own business ever until I was much, much older. And even when, because I I went from working at my parents' store to moving to New York and I always worked for other people and it never even like, it really didn't occur to me. I didn't have this like lifelong dream right. of being an entrepreneur just because my parents were, you know, it was really something that came later in life and it was like always there. I just didn't. Like it was, it was like dormant, you know, in me, right, like right, this right. entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, I can't imagine it any other way, but I worked for other people. I liked working for other people. You know, I was an assistant for a long time. I liked that because I was very much, and I'm still like this. Like I like, you know, I like making things happen. I like checking things off my list. Like I'm that kind of person, you know, and it, and it wasn't until I was older that I, you know, probably in like my mid thirties, like I started a dog walking business when I first, I was living in San, Cam and I lived in San Francisco for the first year of our marriage and, or maybe the second year. And I didn't know what I wanted to be doing. And at that time I'd already got, I've already been a hairstylist for a long time. And I had done a couple other jobs like in PR and we moved to San Francisco and I didn't know anybody and I didn't know what I wanted to do. But, you know, and I had gotten married and he was working and I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to start having babies here soon. (laughs) So what do I want to do? And I started a dog walking business and that was probably my first like foray into entrepreneurship. And, Mm -hmm. and I, and I remember very distinctly, I mean, I loved dogs and so I wanted to like do that. And Cam made me a cute little website and people started calling me and I, that was like the thrill of it for me when people started calling me and I started getting business. And then I was like. Uh, and then I was like walking up to like eight or nine dogs at a time, which was like, <laughs> and I had like a convertible Volkswagen bug. I mean, oh, it was such a yeah. shit show. Oh, yeah. Classic cars that no I mean, I, I cannot believe I didn't take more pictures of that because I used to <laughs> stuff dogs in that car. Yeah. 
But it was it was fun, but I was so bored because I'm just like with dogs all day. <laughs> no yeah. one's talking to me. No one would talk to me. I used to call Cam like all day long because I was so bored. But, you know, I, I was like, that was the first like real entrepreneurship thing that I had, you know, kind of dipped my toe into. And again, I loved the building of that business. I didn't love the the job. Right. right. And and so, you know, you did that, but even before you mentioned going, you know, beauty and fashion and being interested mm-hmm. in all these things. And for someone who was like ambitious, just like even, you know, in your childhood and growing up, did did you have like one particular sort of vision for your career or life that like this is what I'm meant to do or what I want to do as opposed to you know, I'm interested in this right now. And then you're just kind of jumping around. Like, did you, did you have a clear vision at all? I did not. I really didn't. I mean, you know, I was, I did jump around a lot and I always went from like thing to thing that like felt good and right to me at the time. Um, which I, you know, I don't know if that's like the greatest piece of advice to give people. Although I think, you know, for me, it, it was important and it continues to be important. And I think it's how my life has evolved is like, I've gone and I've done the things that I enjoy, that like get me excited, that are fun to me. And I think that a lot of people actually don't do that. They they kind of do what they, you know, quote unquote should do or, or something or there's some sort of path they should take that society, I don't know. But for me, no, I didn't. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I've never been that person. I've mm. never, I didn't, you know, I didn't, there was, <laughs> there was really no business plan for Drybar. I just, I had, I had like kind of stumbled into doing this mobile blowout business when I became a stay-at-home mom and I was home with my two boys. And after about like five years of that, I was like, oh my God, I have to get out of the house again. It's like, what can I do? And I, so I started a mobile blowout business and then very, really, very quickly realized there was a hole in the marketplace and I should maybe turn it into a brick and mortar instead of, you know, traveling. And, and so that's how Drybar happened. And, and, and even though we had an inkling of an idea that this might work and be really great, there, Michael had a full-time job. Cam was, you know, a creative director at an advertising agency. And it was so, which is, which is very much like how I've always kind of rolled. It's like, I'm just doing what I love to do. Um, and again, I think that like, that's probably not, you know, that probably doesn't like work or feel right to to some people. I'm not. I've never been like I think a big. A lot planner. of it comes down to being able to like manage fear and uncertainty, right? Yeah. Like because that is what it is. I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen, and you're taking a big risk. Like you're mm-hmm. kind of going off the sort of path that is sort of almost laid out for you. Like this yeah. is what you want to do. Here's the blueprint. Go to get this degree, get this job, and sure. work your way up. Like, yeah. and this is so uncertain, and there's just a lot of ambig- ambiguity. So, like for you, I guess. I mean, if you can remember, and even maybe now, like, how do you manage that? Are you, do you have like some sort of approach or intention behind it? Or or are you just naturally that way? I think I'm just naturally not afraid of failure. I'm not afraid of, I'm, I'm a very decisive person and I'm very like quick with like, I know what I like, I know what I don't like, I know what I want to do, I know what I don't want to do. Like, I, I don't, I don't like fluctuate a lot in that space. And I mean, even now, you know, jumping way ahead, it's like dry bars 11 years old. I'm not really as involved anymore as I used to be. And we've started other businesses. I just started a jewelry company called Beckett and Quill. And that is like, talk about like, it, it is so out of my wheelhouse, but I'm like, fuck it. Like, yeah. I'm just going to try it and, mm-hmm. and see what happens. And, and you know, I mean, I've, of course, like, I'm sure there's, you know, expectations that like, oh, can it be as successful as big and dry bar? Probably not. And I don't, I'm not like, I don't really care about that, <laughs> yep. you know? And I didn't really care about that when I started dry bar. It was right. like never 
it was never, which I think is an important thing to point out, it was never like, oh, let's build this big business and like make a lot of money. And not that, you know, not that like making money and isn't important, but I don't think it should ever be the like reason. The reason, like the 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 goal to like, you know, and I and I understand because I like nice things and I I grew, you know, I grew up in like my par- my parents had, you know, money at different times in their life. So I was exposed to that at different times, but never like, you know, anything crazy. And I think that I've, you know, I've I've really been driven by the thing that I like to do versus by the thing that's going to like, you know, you know, the rocket ship to like, you mm-hmm. know, being rich, you know, it right. just was never a thing for me. And I think that that's also just an important thing to point out because I think people kind of get into certain businesses or areas for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. you know, because they think they're going to, it means this or that versus right. like it's what they love. You mm-hmm. mentioned something about, you know, your path earlier and how maybe that's not the best advice, but I, I actually disagree. I think it is the best advice that, you know, not having a linear life mm-hmm. usually ends up, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the statistics, but I, just from what I know, I think usually ends up in your favor because you get to experience different things. You get to meet different types of people. You get to be part of different industries. You get to be part of different jobs. And from all of that, it becomes like at the end, like this amalgamation of all your different experiences and the things totally. that you've been, you know, the things that you've learned and you do get more confident, right? You, you know, once you know, the person that is like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Suddenly you're like, oh, I, I can do that. Like I've seen seven entrepreneurs operate and frankly, they weren't anything special. Mm-hmm. Like is that, that's the blow, that's the bar. Yeah, I can do better than that. Yeah, Right. And so you just kind of can take that leap. And I think the confidence and, you know, ability is really built through those experiences. And I think the best entrepreneurs are the ones that did not have any clue what they were doing. They worked at a movie theater <laughs> well, because and then really they worked, nobody knows what they're doing. They, they don't. I mean, that's yeah, the big yeah. secret. And, and nobody sure really knows what they like until they do the thing that they realize yeah. that they like. And I'm sure you guys, you know, talking to lots of different founders and mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, you realize that like nobody really, that's like the big, <laughs> like, aha, like, oh shit, nobody actually knows what they're doing. You yeah. know, it's like, you know, you know, some things about some things, right? but nobody has if you, all the if you, It's kind of like if you knew what you were doing, that means it's been done before because, so, because you had right. some sort of like roadmap. baseline or yeah roadmap or something to look at so mm-hmm. and 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 you could argue that if it's been done before and you're doing the exact same thing you're probably not going to be as successful as the mm-hmm. person that did it right before you right so it's yeah like, i mean it, yeah i mean i i always say that like we obviously didn't invent blowouts but we it, we created a much better experience price point ambiance all of those things around the blowout you know which i think is like a great place to start there's there's so many things that I think like just as humans out there in the world that we love that we were like, but you know, like your favorite restaurant or your favorite, whatever it is, you're, you go in there and you're like, I love this, but I wish it was like they did this. And I wish this was like this, you know, and there is the opportunity, you right. know, and and that's, you know, we've done it with blowouts. We're doing it with massage now, yep. you know, we, we just announced this other um, business okay humans which is like now we're doing it with therapy there's just like there's a, tons of things out there so was it the experience that was sort of lacking or was it um like the inaccessibility of like or was it all of it yeah it was all of it i mean it was like you know growing up my mom used to take me to like her hair salon which was like you know as i remember quite fondly. It was like she would get her nails done, her toes done, she'd get her color done. She'd do like all sorts of stuff. It was like a full service salon. And that's really how salons have been forever and ever. Right. And 
And then it was like, you know, women would certainly get their hair just styled. And that was always, has always been a service that's offered at hair salons. But, you know, what I realized, and I, part of this was like, you know, again, I, I so firmly believe everything happens for a reason. I went to beauty school in South Florida with the aforementioned little old ladies. And I would do those same little old ladies would come to like beauty schools to get like a, literally a $2 blowout or like a $5 haircut. I mean, that's right. how beauty school is because they're, they're guinea pigs right. really. And I, but I had so many great conversations with those women and I remember blowing out their hair and talking to them about how when they were younger, you know, they would go to the beauty parlor and all, uh, they'd see all their friends there. And it was like a social thing. And again, I wasn't really paying attention to that. And now, and then all these years later when we started dry bar, I'm like, you know, there's the, the hair, the hair salons that offer blowouts, which was most of them, their stylists didn't want to spend the 45 minutes blow drying someone's hair because the price point was lower than a haircut or color. It was like a loss leader it for just, their yeah, services. It just yeah. It wasn't something that they wanted to spend their time on. So mm-hmm. that behavior that like our grandmothers and grandmother's generation loved went, went away. It was like you were full service salon. Nobody wanted to focus on blowouts. It was, it was like almost like a waste of time and money. And and so, you know, it was like all of these things, it was like came together for me of like, why isn't there a place where women can go for a great blowout without all the pressure of cut and color and like all that shit and the smell and the blah, 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 all the things that happen in hair salon um, and, and make it like an experience where women can just like relax. All they have to worry about is like they're just getting their hair blown out. It's like a pressure-free environment. If we make it look and feel really awesome, and then it was like, oh, we'll, we'll add the movie, the movies on the the flat screen TV, and we, you know, put a phone, iPhone charger mm-hmm. in there. It's like, mm-hmm. what as a woman did I want? You know, I right, want right. these are all the things that so, I wanted. Yeah, didn't clearly, exist. clearly there was a big market for it because obviously it worked out for Drybar. But at the time, why don't you think? you know, these salons realized that? Was it just because it was kind of bundled up in like the service Mm -hmm. of this package of services that, you know, they didn't, you know, sort of see the value of one of those services? Well, I think it was, yes, I think it was that. And also that I think that there just wasn't like, you know, I, I can't tell you how many women over the years have come up to me and said, like, I had this idea and I didn't know how to execute it and I didn't know what to do. And, and it was, it's a pretty daunting idea of a business because, and and this is where I think like ignorance is bliss comes to like serves me, which has been the case my whole life, yep. um, is that how do you make a business where you're charging just like $35 for a blowout? Like if you do the math on that, it's pretty tough. Your mm-hmm. margins are really narrow. And when you add up like the labor and the rent and the towels and the like laundry list of things, it's not, it doesn't seem, you know, to be doing like 30 to 40 blowouts a day, it's like an okay business. And, I, you know, and I, again, we weren't banking on this being like this massive business where I just wanted to have my own little, I really truly just wanted to have my own little like salon, my blowout salon that was just blowouts and it would be like my place and that would be where I'd go and I'd make like a nice little livelihood up. That was it because again, that was what we thought. We thought it would be like 30 to 40 women a day and at that number, we would make a little bit of money. What we didn't realize, which I I really didn't know, that it was going to be more like 80 to 100 women a day, right. which was like a whole different ball game. Now we're doing a ton of blowouts and we're like, holy shit, this is now we're making a lot of money because what we initially projected as like 30 to 40 blowouts at $35 a pop very quickly turned into like 80 to 100 blowouts. Right, which you now, yeah. 
Yeah. And so that, so I think back to your question, you know, most salon owners, understandably, like if they can get $300 an hour versus 70 for a blowout, like all day long, they're going to do that. Why wouldn't they? I just was like, you know, most, most hair salons are usually run by hairstylists, like, you Mm -hmm. know, the hairstylist open salons. And I understand like, why would they do that? There's a much bigger opportunity to make a lot more money in an hour slot than there is to do blowouts. So like that whole idea seems like no way I'm not interested in that. But I was like, I didn't, I didn't even, while I was coming up in hair salons and and I cut hair for a long time, I loved getting through the haircut to do the blowout. And the blowout was just maybe because of my childhood and Mm -hmm. whatever. The blowout was what I loved even when I was cutting hair because it was like, that's when the hairstyle really came to life. And and that's when like the client got really excited because you could see it. And it was, that was like the magic for me in hair. And so I wanted to just do blowouts. I didn't want to, like, I didn't care about cut and color. I didn't want, I wasn't interested in it. I loved just blowouts. And so, you know, another big question during that, you know, ideation stage was like, will there be any other stylists out there that will also just like the styling part of it? And that was a massive question mark. And I didn't really know until I started like placing ads and literally had people come (laughs) to my house to blow out my hair as a test to work at dry bar before there was a, you know, a dry bar. And, you know, it turns out that there are a lot of stylists (laughs) out there that want to do that. I mean, we pre-COVID had 4,000 stylists working for us. And I would say we've probably trained about 10,000 stylists over the course of, if not more, over the course of the 11 years we've, Mm. you know, grown this business. So there were so many unknowns, so many question marks about like, how does this business work? This is, is this model work, you know, and we, we very quickly figured out that it did, (laughs) but I think nobody, everybody else was kind of afraid to take that risk. Understandably. I remember when I was first listening to your story, I don't remember when it was, it must have been years ago. Uh, there was a name that stood out to me, John Sahag, that mm-hmm. was like mm-hmm. either a mentor of yours yeah. or like somebody that you looked up to. So the reason I knew of him was because Pat and I are both Armenian and he's actually Armenian. Huh. Um, and he's actually like Lebanese Armenian where my parents are from. Huh. So um, he's obviously an, a known name in the community. What did you learn from your time with him that, you know, perhaps inspired you in that moment or in the later years when you did launch Dry Bar about, you know, about the business, about service, yeah. about hair. Well, it's so, it's so funny. Nobody ever knows at this point John's hot because, you know, he died a like while 10, ago. 11 years ago. Yeah. Probably more than, more that, than that now, yeah. yeah. But when I was working in a hair salon in Boca, the, a guy named John Peters, he, was, he really taught me everything I know about hair and the way I blow dry hair. And again, it was another one of those experiences where he owned the salon. So he was, I was his, his assistant and, you know, I was really there to learn hair, but he was dealing with like shop issues all the time and all the other stylists. And so while again, I wasn't really paying attention, I did learn all these things that got like stored away in my brain that I would then later take out when we started dry bar. So I really was like, I mean, I was like a sponge with John and like, I just admired him so much and he loved John Zahog. And so he turned me on to him and, you know, John Zahog was very much the pioneer of dry cutting and he kind of started that trend. And so I, <laughs> because John Peters loved John Zahog, I started following him and then, you know, I don't know how much you know about him, but he was this really- Probably not as much as you. Yeah. He <laughs> was really cool. I mean, he was like this like very- like kind of dark and mysterious guy. And 
good looking and and this famous hairdresser before hairdressers were famous mm-hmm. and not to mention he did every celebrity he had a he had a cool salon in a Madison Avenue or Fifth Avenue in mm-hmm. New York yeah. and I I was kind of enamored by him and I was very much in the hair world and Tony and Guy was also a big deal back then and they were also like like the Mascalas were they're the big hair family and I loved them and they actually ended up interviewing me years later which was also such a amazing full circle moment for me but I moved to New York City and the only place I wanted to work was for John's Hog. And I, you know, I walked in that salon and I was like, you know, I'm I'm actually writing a book right now, which is like my memoir, and I talk a lot about this because John was a really big influence in my life. And I just he was the only person I wanted to work for. And his ironically, his salons were very very quiet and very zen and like there was waterfalls that kind of went throughout them and he had these massive greyhounds that were always laying around him and it was I remember like I was an assistant there so I would be like washing the dishes in the back and I would have like the water fully on and he would come back and like put it to half on (laughs) because he's like you don't need it to be that strong I mean everything was very (laughs) chill and I wasn't like that (laughs) um and and so it was a really exciting time in my life and I liked doing that but it was actually around that time I must have been like, I don't know, 25 and I was working for him and I, I kind of got a little like, ironically, again, disenchanted with hair and decided I was going to, you know, I had a couple of friends who were working for Rogers and Cowan mm. and I was like, I think I'm going to go do that. And there was an <laughs> opening in the music department for an assistant and I was like, that yeah. sounds fun, which was like Paul McCartney and Janet Jackson right. and like really cool artists. And so I decided to do that. And I remember talk going and talking to John about it and saying, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to try something else. And he was like, I think you're making a mistake. You should stay in hair. You're really talented and blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to go as like a true 20 something year old. I was like, no, no, I'm out of here. And, you know, unfortunately John passed away before dry bar ever happened. So he never got to see it, which I, I always felt like, so sad about that because I I know he would have been really proud of me and he was you know he was such a he was such a uh, like an interesting point in my life even though it was short it was like a year of my life yeah. you know but he was yeah I mean I've had some really great mentors in my life and and then you know going from working from John Sahag to then working in PR which was which was also another really great stepping right. stone for me because I was like writing press releases and I was the assistant to a very important guy. I mean, he was like Paul McCartney's publicist and Jennifer Lopez and and I, you know I I think that's when I learned like professionalism. That's when I learned how to like compose emails and that <laughs> was you know not something that I cared about right. or thought about, but I was like working in a cubicle and that was really fun for a while and not a long term thing for me, but an, another really important like foundational building block for me and. Hmm. So, you know, it was just like another one of those things that I think really shaped me for, you know, being ready to be at the helm of a big company like Drybar. Mm -hmm. So when you have this idea for Drybar, right, um, did you like tell people about it, like friends, family, and like, were they telling you you're crazy to to do this? Because, you know, you mentioned ignorance is bliss and in hindsight, (laughs) you know, you you probably would have looked at it the same way and you might have said, you know, the margins are not very nice, like this is not a great business, Mm -hmm. like. Maybe I won't. Maybe I won't do this. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you just don't know any better. So I guess were people discouraging you to do it, or were they more encouraging yes you? Yes and no. It was kind of a mixed bag. You know, I was operating the mobile business, and so all of my clients, and I was only charging forty dollars to go to women's homes, which is again very, very inexpensive. You know, most stylists won't go for like less than a hundred dollars right. to someone's house, if if not more, and. You know, so I started like talking to them about this idea, like, hey, I'm thinking about like opening 
a salon that's just blowouts and every women just were like, that's fucking genius. You should do that right now. You know, men were like, (laughs) what, what? What?" They were so confused by it. And, and my brother, you know, my brother pretty quickly got on board with it and wanted to help me. And he had money. He had worked for Yahoo. So he was going to initially, you know, funded and give me sweat equity, which is the first time I had ever heard that term in my life. (laughs) And, you know, but his friends who ended up later investing were like, your little sister, you're going to do, you're doing what with your little sister? Like, no, this is crazy. This this is never going to work. And like landlords were very like, we've never heard of this concept. We had to personally guarantee that first lease in Brentwood. And yeah, so there was, and it was in the middle of a recession. It was in 2010 that we opened the first right. dry bar. And I didn't really realize that. It's like back then I wasn't really watching the news much. Right. I was so in my own little world. And I mean, I kind of knew, but, you know, and I was very much like at that point in my life, I was very on a strict budget. You know, we lived in like an apartment and I was like not really paying attention to it. But I did, you know, know and feel like, listen, for $35, I think women will do this pretty frequently. It's like sure. I wanted it to be an affordable luxury. That was my my vision on it. it. Was like, here is something that like levels the playing field for women everywhere. It's like you can have that like red carpet look that you see in like Us Weekly just mm-hmm. by going to Dry Bar. And like the the things that are usually like reserved for celebrities and really wealthy, now women you know, can do this and it's much more affordable. And that was that's what I had hoped for and thought would happen, which you know. <laughs> It did. You know, you talked about, and I think a lot of people, when they see a business that they like and that they're like, oh my God, we had thought of this idea before, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I can't believe someone's doing this. This was my idea 10 years ago, five years ago. They just exaggerate the hell out of it and they just act like they could have done it better, right? Why is it that you did it better? And why, and what did you do, right, to make it a success? Because there are those moments that people say, oh, actually, I did think of that idea a year or two ago. And maybe they started and they failed or maybe they never never started. What is the secret or is there a secret to that success? I think so. I mean, I've always – we've talked about that so much that I think there is a secret sauce. And, you know, I think that I was like very uniquely qualified to do this probably more than like most people because, you know, when you, you, know, I, when you hear my story, it's like – hair and blowouts (laughs) since I was a little kid have always been like a thing for me, you know, so there's that. And then I went to school and became a stylist and I, and it's funny because I've connected here and there with some people who used to work at John Zahog and they're like, oh yeah, because what would happen, the way John Zahog, the method was like, you would come in with your hair like dirty and someone would flat iron it. Then they would cut it. Then an assistant like me would wash it and blow dry it. So I was doing blowouts all day long and there was a lot of pressure because it was You were dry. the closer. Yeah, I was the closer. <laughs> I, and because, you know, then then John would look at it. And I, right. used to, I used to have to blow out John's girlfriend's hair all the time. And it was I was so nervous. <laughs> I was like bright red at the end because I was so scared of what he was going to think. But, you know, so – and but it was like blow dry boot camp. And I had – you know, it's like Malcolm. Gladwell's 10,000 hours. Like I had that in spades and I was like, you know, and so, you know, when you, when you think about that, you know, and then my parents having their own business and like understanding customer service. And then, you know, I'm married at the time to this like creative genius and branding, like, it's just like the stars really aligned for us. And so I think the secret sauce, which I a hundred percent think we had was like, 
I knew this business backwards and forwards and exactly what I wanted. And I knew hair and I knew if someone was unhappy and I knew if it wasn't being executed right. And I knew customer service. And, you know, Michael and I had such a strong foundation in that, that like we had that. So, you know, and then it was like Cam who had the creative you know, was the creative mastermind. And then Josh Heitler, who's our architect, who's now our same architect for Squeeze and OK Humans and all these things that we've, we've been doing. It was just like, you couldn't have, it would be really hard to duplicate that. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the early days when we first started doing interviews and Michael and I were like, maybe we shouldn't like, cause we would just say everything and we were not like, we we're just so excited to tell people and I would talk to anybody and I'd tell them all the things that we did. And we started to feel like, oh shit, like is someone going to copy us? And everybody copied us, right. but nobody did it. And I, you know, I really feel like, like humbly, nobody did it as well as we did because they, you know, it was hard. You couldn't have hired me, Cam, Michael, right. Josh, and and paid we didn't pay ourselves anything for years, you know. It's like it was you, like you almost can't escape it, right? And like you know, we always talk about it. Like good ideas are are fleeting, right? Like people have ideas all the time, but they might not be like able in a to place, execute. yeah. And for yeah. whatever reason, like right. they might not know as much as the next person yeah. does, or they just might want to be, you know, it just looks like a get rich quick scheme, or what you know, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Um, you know, it it's almost like you're sort of in this position where all these things around you are like these forces are like pushing you to do it where you just can't, you can't not. Yeah. Do it. I mean, it, it really, I mean, I, I think it was Michael who said it initially, it felt like lightning in a bottle because it was like, there was so much magic between all of us. And to your point, it was like, Michael was kind of at the point in his name. Michael was running like a real estate marketing company at the time. You know, Cam had a big fancy job as a creative director. He was doing like Jack in the box commercials and like, mm. you know, really cool stuff. But it was this time in our lives where we were all able to come together and do this. Had it been another time or we didn't all live in LA at the time, like probably wouldn't have happened, mm-hmm. you know? And it was like so many things aligning and, you know, that maybe that part of it was good luck and fortune that we all happened to be at the same place in the same time we were able to do this at the same time. Um, but the, you know, the rest was like expertise and hard work mm-hmm. and, and again, it's like if we always like we would always talk about that. Like, what if somebody else came along and kind of ate our lunch here? But it was like, well, they're going to have to raise a lot of money up front to be able to like pay what Cam is worth, what I'm worth, what Michael's worth. Like, but we we didn't have to pay that because we right. were a family and we were just doing it for like the thing, not right. for the money. Which again goes back to my earlier point. It's like we weren't no. I mean. We did not take. I didn't. We did not take money for a very, very long right. time as we were growing this. Right. right. And, and another part of my point was like you almost have. You almost have to also have this like lens that you notice that's happening, right? Because mm. again, like you could be looking, you know, at you know, kind of the you know other people and what other people are doing, and just like wanting to do X, Y, and Z because it, you know it seems like a good way to make money, or you know, well, it's, it seems a, exciting, right? But it's like you don't even realize what's around you, or what's happening around you. Well, you're and kind that of was largely that. what was happening with the competition. You know, I remember when the first like copycat opened like down the street from us and I would like drive by like low in my car because I didn't well not that I knew who I was but I was checking it out because I was like oh my god they were getting ripped off and (laughs) and (laughs) and it was like almost time after time and they and more and more and more started popping up but just to your point it was like you know when you walk in dry bar like the mirrors are behind the stations which largely came from my uh, learning from my mobile business like i used to do women's hair in like a setting like this like in a, like their living room where they weren't sitting in front of a mirror which i also learned that women 
women don't want to stare at themselves for 45 minutes in a fucking mirror and like pick <laughs> themselves apart that like get let's like watch a cool chick flick you know it yeah. was like so many of there's lots of those things that nobody knew and understood even though i would talk about these things publicly too but i was <laughs> i'll never forget walking in a, in a copycat and like they did have mirrors behind the stations but they were like too high so it was like it just like they didn't get it while we were doing it and that was what we learned was like people looked at dry bar like this is such a great opportunity. Let me hire some hairstylists, paint some walls, get some blow dryers, and like, right. boom, I have like a dry bar. It's like, <laughs> you right. do not. And then it's like the training that went into place from the, you know, from the stylists and to the people who worked there it was like all of it. It all mattered, and it was hard to duplicate what we were doing. It well, still is. I think what people have probably mistaken, and I think they still do today, is that you know when I view dry bar i view it as a hospitality company mm -hmm. right it's it's not a blow drying company and hairstyling company it's like you're providing service it just so happens to be that you're doing hair right, right. you could easily do True. something else mm -hmm. right and i think that that's very difficult to duplicate because hospitality requires service it requires energy it requires the right mindset the right people mm -hmm. and i mean unless you literally take all of those things and clone them you're not going to be able to do exactly right. as is. And, and then it just becomes a different experience. Totally. It's not to say that it's not going to be good or great or yeah. whatever. It's just going to be a different experience than dry bar. But, you know, in in my opinion, I think that those people that are copycatting or those people that were doing that just proves that you were the leader, mm -hmm. right? It, like you're the person that they turn to. Mm -hmm. So as long as other customers know that and they do, they're like, oh, that's another dry bar, yeah. right? They're just called something else you know dry whatever light bar yeah whatever you know and they're still out there but it's like the customers aren't stupid right consumers know this no stuff. and we, we used to we experienced that a lot because i remember again feeling like very like oh shit a lot of other people are copying us right it's gonna hurt us and and what we heard time and time again which was you know, so gratifying. It was like, we were so busy that we were, you know, it was hard to get appointments mm. at dry bar because there weren't that many. And so they'd inevitably go to a copycat and we'd always hear, yeah, I don't know. I didn't love it. And it was like, I know why you didn't like it you, because the lighting wasn't right. The music wasn't right. The stylist wasn't trained right. The customers, I, you know, I know why they, right. you know, clients, some clients know and some clients don't, but sure. They knew, and I agree, they're very, like the consumer is very smart. And it's like they knew this is not the dry bar experience. And oh my God, we spent so <laughs> much money on those early days on like cease and desist letters, which right. was like not budgeted for. <laughs> I mean, we spent well. so much money on legal fees because we were because people were opening places calling them dry bar. And we're like, wow. it was it's like the Kleenex right, you know, right, model. It's like right, exactly. everyone was just like, and, and it's still, it's you know, and on like yeah, on some level, it's kind of cool that it's like it <laughs> yeah. is that, but yep. it was like no, no, no. It, what was what was bad it was the confusion in the marketplace, and it's like someone thought it was a dry bar. They went in and they were like, meh, and, and we're like, it wasn't like, us, you know? Sucks. Yeah, there was a lot of that in the early days. Yeah, how, how did you? I mean, obviously, dry bar grew very fast. You know, it was in the first probably what few months. You guys had like another location that you were already working Within on. Six months, yeah, yeah, and so you kept you know growing, 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 growing. At what point did you guys decide this is like way beyond us? Like something needs to happen. We're obviously moving very fast. Mm -hmm. I can't have 10 Alley Webs. We can't have 10 <laughs> Michaels. Yeah. Like, you know, what did you guys do? Well, I mean, it was really Michael. I mean, we were so in the trenches. We opened the second store six months later, which, which, by the way, now, you know, saying now six months doesn't seem like very long, yeah. but it seemed like it's a lifetime because we were so busy at 
the Brentwood shop that we were like, oh my God, we need more chairs. The, the Brentwood shop was only eight chairs and we, you know, business was just on fire. And Michael was like, we're going to have to hire people to help us, you know? And I was like, okay. And, you know, and so we, you know, we started hiring people little by little. And then I think it was like when we got to maybe like six or seven stores, which at that point we were still like doing it completely on our own. We had hired like one or two people, but Michael and I were very much at the helm. And I remember Michael was, you know, interviewing this woman who had like been the president of uh, Pinkberry. And I was like, Mm. And when I found out like what her salary requirement was, I was like, are you out of your mind? Like we're not paying ourselves. I mean, I, I think for years I like paid myself, we like 30 grand was what I was like for yeah. years. That was my salary. And when, when this woman came along and I was like, I don't even think I'd ever heard of a salary that big. I was so like, like no way, Michael, what are you talking about? But he was like, Allie, if we want to grow and scale this thing, we need to hire people who know how to grow and scale a business because that, you know, at six stores, which now in, you know, compared to 150 doesn't seem like much, but you know, that's like 30 to 40 employees per shop. For, no, it's, you a know, it's a lot of people. It's a lot yeah. of blowouts. It's a lot of payroll. It's a lot of issues. And, you know, we had hired managers for all the stores and we were kind of, we might've even had maybe one district manager at that point, which I could manage that. That wasn't that bad, but it was like, if we're going to grow this thing and we're going to grow this thing, we need people who are smarter than us, who know how to scale. And that was, you know, really largely Michael talking to, you know, lots of other business owners and getting that advice. And I, I, I think it was like Michael and I were on a podcast together or an interview together. And he talked about how he got that advice from somebody. And I was like, Oh, I thought you just came up with that, you know? (laughs) But I mean, just like, just like this, it's like, you learn these things from like, you know, talking to other people and whatever. And sure. You know, and I, I talk about it all the time. It's like, you know, hire people who are smarter than you and know more than you to help you get to that next level. And, you know, not everybody was a fit and, you know, there was like a lot of trial and error. And it's like, you're, you're also as a founder, you're starting to like relinquish certain things to this person. And that's really not fun. And that was very, very hard for me. And it, and it continued to be hard for the next, like, you know, uh, however many years, like allowing other people to come Mm. in and make decisions. And it was a, it was a really interesting, like learning and growing process. But yeah, I mean, you definitely need other people who know how to do the things that you don't. Did you guys ever franchise? Yeah, we did. And I, I didn't actually want to franchise. Michael wanted to early on because he was like, listen, this is a way to get us, you know, start really putting our, you know, getting our footprint out there. But, and it was also like, there was all these other competitors opening and it was like, we want, we were kind of like a land grab. Like, yeah, it was like, we we needed to rush to market. And I was like, "Ah, man, I don't want to franchise. I'm afraid they're, someone's going to mess up the brand and they're not going to do it the way we want them to do it. And, you know, that was when I kind of started to learn that there's a lot of ways to do things right, right, but there's like one way we do it. And we ended up like, you know, at the handful of franchisees of like people that we really trusted in, we were really picky about it. And we hired great people, but even, they're not hired, but we partnered with great people. And even some of those franchisees, I remember like walking into a store and like seeing things and being like, oh my God, what, are you, what, like, why are you doing that? That's not how it should be. And I would like, <laughs> it would drive me crazy. And that was, there was a lot of like growing pains in that and learning how to do that. But, but yeah, I mean, I would say of like, the 150 stores, I don't know, something like 
70 of them are franchised. Mm, so a lot of them high. are. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then we, we held on to like LA, New York, like the big metropolitan cities right. and we franchised smaller cities that we weren't going to have as big of a footprint in. Sure. At what point did you decide to launch like your own products? Um, you know, um, like besides just having your stores, yeah. like having more of like a product, uh, to, distribution. Well, I mean, that was really hard too. And I knew early on that I wanted to do my own product line because we were using products from like these other lines and they didn't like really work together well. And they didn't like, I didn't like the way it looked and it's just so many things I didn't like about it, but I had no idea. Like, <laughs> how do you do a product line? Like I had no idea, even though I'd been in the industry forever, I was like, I don't really even know where to start. And it, and I did try. And the first thing I did like on my own was our shower cap, which is still our same shower cap all these years later. But it wasn't until Castanea came in, which was our private equity partner, and they invested, I think the first round was like $21 million. And with Castanea, uh, Janet Gerwich was a partner in Castanea, and she was the founder of Laura Mercier Cosmetics, mm-hmm. which you guys may or may not know. Yeah, but, definitely heard of it. Um, yeah, they were pretty big and, and company. And at that time, we were kind of starting to be courted by like, L'Oreal and Living Proof to do like a co-branded product mm-hmm, line, mm-hmm. which was very enticing. And I was like, oh, you know, and I was like, that's a, that felt really cool. And then we had like, we, we met and like with the president of L'Oreal, like I was like, you know, so cool. But Janet was like, listen, even if you, because we were still like figuring out if Castaneda was going to be our partner or not. And she's like, even if you don't take our money, don't do a branded, a co-branded product line, do it yourself. You'll have total control of it. You'll make more money and blah, blah. And so we did end up taking the investment from Castanea and Janet was was part of that and a big reason why. I mean, Janet introduced me to all the best labs and packaging and we hired uh, this consultant that really helped us like navigate that. And, you know, and that was like, you know, very quickly became a business within a business right. and was like, oh my God, we're back in, we're going to launch this new thing and holy shit, what if people don't like it? And it was mm-hmm. like, it was literally a business within a business and we ended up, you know, partnering with Sephora and they were, Sephora was involved kind of helping us like what we used to call in the kitchen meetings with them and saying we would present them with like what we were doing. And they knew more about the consumer space when it came to hair and they would say, no, you can't really call it that. And from our like research and data, you can't do this and do that. So we, you know, went back to the drawing board several times and then we launched, we did like, they have like 400 locations or something. And we Mm -hmm. did a test in 75 doors and and of course we put them in our dry bars but at that point we only had like maybe like 11 or 12 dry bars and mm-hmm. um it was like you know off to the races and, and the product line did really well and then i think it was like a couple of years ago where you sold the product yes. line and then if i think i read correctly it was like last year-ish where you um, sold the franchise side of the business yeah what ultimately ended up having like almost like a decade of running this like what sort of yeah happened so <laughs> Right before the world fell apart, we, I mean, like, I'm talking weeks, if that, maybe two weeks. It was crazy timing. We sold the product division. I remember that. To Helen of Troy, um, which was just insane. That Is, the, are they like a USC affiliated company? I mean, like, Helen of Troy sounds very I know, no, SC-like. but they're a big company. Okay, and yeah, they do a lot of like, um, uh, appliances. No, no, no. Like appliances and interesting. So they do. They also do. Um, you know, hot tools, which is mm. like in like the, the industry, the big curling irons. Yeah. yeah, which is Helen. It stands for Helen of Troy. Mm. And um, anyways, so they bought us, which was like 
really amazing timing. And then we still had the stores. It was a really complicated deal. And then, you know, then the pandemic hit. And so for the last like year or so, it's obviously been really, really challenging. And, you know, long story short, we were like, you know, we had, we had made a lot, some money from that and that was like meant to go do other things in dry bar. And then that ended up just like, we, we used that money to keep the business afloat for the year, which got very like down to the wire, which is why we ended up doing the deal with WellBiz. So WellBiz is like a franchise kind of organization mm -hmm. and they own lots of different brands that are completely franchised. So now they kind of own all the dry bar franchisees, all the people who own the, our partners that have dry bar franchisees now like roll up into mm -hmm. WellBiz. And, and so do we. So we have, we still own all the like non-franchised or, you know, before the sale, all the non-franchised shops, which is like LA, New York, and we are the biggest like franchisee that is also kind of rolls up into WellBiz now. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a it's yep. an interesting thing, but we kind of had to do it, you know, to 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 keep it. Are things opening yeah. back up? Yeah, I mean, business is really coming back very strong, which we knew it would. You know, I mean, knock on wood. I mean, more events are, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're you know we haven't opened all of the stores yet. We're kind of you know slowly getting True. there. But I know I was at Glendale the other day, and I was like, why isn't this open yet? Yeah. All the Armenian people are going to come in there. And yeah, just, you know, they're they're come, they're all coming back online <laughs> yeah, soon. Yeah. But we've had to do it like kind of in tranches and yeah, yeah. So you know, and it's it, you know, but, but even before all of that, you know, my involvement and my you know, we had hired a professional CEO years ago, and then we had a new CEO, and it was like, you know, my day to day kind of happened stopped years ago, and. Um, you know, and then it just kind of became, I was doing like, you know, still consulting on product and doing press and stuff like that, but not. I know you mentioned you sort of struggled with like having to relinquish some like, you know, power in the mm -hmm. company. Like, was that time difficult when you sort of realized like my day to day isn't what it used to be? And, and now I just have to either figure a place out for myself at this company or. I have to move on and do other things. Like yeah, I mean, I, it was like it was a very slow progression. It didn't all it didn't happen all at once, and it did start to be like okay, like I'm gonna you know kind of start stepping further and further back, and that's really what happened over the last like three or four years. Is I just started to take a step back and you know not do as much as I used to do, and um, you know I think that I just got to the point where I felt like good about that. You know, I had other projects that I wanted to work on. We wanted to launch squeeze, you know, I, I, I have a couple of like kind of personal projects that I wanted to do. And, you know, I felt like it was, you know, I, it, I didn't, it was kind of a decision that I, it was a lot of, it was a lot of things happening at once, but I just felt like I didn't, I had kind of done what I needed to do with this, you know, and it wasn't like, I wasn't running it anymore. It just was a different, you know, kind of a different business. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, will always be my legacy and mm -hmm. always, you know, my baby on some level, but yeah, it was just kind of time to start doing and exploring other things, which, you know, now I'm in the throes of. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if, if, if the next decade is anything like 100 years ago after the <laughs> Spanish flu, uh, you know, and, and it is like, you know, the roaring 20s where people are just going to be like, fuck it, we're going like uh, crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dry bar might, not might, it probably will just explode even to yeah, bigger and so. better heights, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, but kind of just... Moving on from Drybar, because I know a lot of people could just Google it and find out and learn more about Drybar. But 
you you know you kind of move forward and you're launching Squeeze and Quill and Beckett and all these other projects. Where I mean, were these ideas that were brewing for the last few years, and you were just like, okay, it's time to get this going. I mean, how did all this come about? Did you take a break? I mean, what what happened? No, I don't think I've ever taken a break. <laughs> um, but it, you know, we Michael and I had really been like you know like noodling on this massage concept because it was so much like. It was such a similar opportunity of dry bar. It was like, there's two bad choices out in the marketplace. It was like, for massages, it was like spas that charge a ton of money or discount chain, which is really right. what dry bar did too. And, you know, we always wanted to do it, but we couldn't do it when we were, you know, in dry bar, like really in heavy and dry bar. And, I, you know, I remember when Michael, Michael really wanted to do it. And I was like, I don't know if I can do it again from scratch, you know, and Brittany Driscoll, who was running our marketing department at Drybar, she she was like getting ready to like move on and, and try something new. And she loves like building businesses. And, you know, Michael and I were like, hey, would you be interested in like running this this company that we want to do? We just we just can't run it, you know, for partially because we are still very, you know, much in dry bar. And also because like I was like, I don't want to start over from scratch like that again with that kind of like level of a business and she did and she wanted to do it. So, and she's amazing and you guys should have her on too. I mean, she's, we're so opposite. I mean, she's, Mm -hmm. she's like very data driven and very like organized and she's like, you know, a marketing executive for many years, but we knew she had this like entrepreneurial spirit and we knew that she would, you know, really kill it. And then she had the experience of like helping us grow dry bar. I don't remember how many, I think she came, I think she came in when we were maybe around like 30 stores and really helped us grow it quite a bit. Anyway, so Brittany, you know, we were like, we will be your advisors and we investors, but you're going to do this. And she, you know, relished the opportunity and she, she did it. So, you know, again, now I'm in this point and then, you know, similar to OK Humans, we had this girl, Christy, who, um, you know, approached Brittany and I about this concept for, you know, kind of like the dry bar of therapy or again, creating an experience around therapy and creating a nicer space and an easier way to book and, and all of that. And, and, you know, it's like, again, let's, let's create this great experience and use all our resources. And we've now formed, formed this company called the feel good company, which has uh, squeeze, okay, humans, and then another business we're launching, which we haven't launched yet, so I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. But that's you know that's going to be under that umbrella. Beckett and Quill is kind of my little passion project on the side that's not in in that. Um, but yeah, so you know it was like we just you know those businesses don't take up my time the way like starting and growing Drybar mm-hmm. did. But you know I'm in this really kind of fun and new you know, position where I'm more of like an advisor and investor now. And, you know, I have my hands in so many different projects and, um, you know, obviously like, you know, Beckett and Quill is another thing that I'm doing and I'm working on a book and I'm working on a television show and I'm working on like all these different projects and who knows what, it's kind of like throwing a lot of things at the wall now to kind of feel Mm -hmm. like what my next 10 years will be like. And, and true to like, you know, my early days, like I'm kind of just, doing what I'm excited about. I love jewelry so much. And I, I came across this woman, Meredith Quill, who was making jewelry and at a fraction of the price of what it looked like. And I was like, man, if we wrapped a brand around this and got a better website and got some attention to it, I think we could like really do, we could have a really great little business here. And so Mm. I'm just doing it because 
it's fun, you know, and I'm kind of following that same roadmap of like, let me just keep doing what is fun and exciting for me. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about, and we can go as deep as you want in this and we could keep it at the surface too, but, you know, we hear a lot of advice for people like, you know, to not, let's say, start a business with their friends, right? But you did it with your brother and your husband (laughs) at the time. Uh, What advice do you have from your experience on how whatever impact that had on your life um, in terms of starting a business? Because naturally, like, you're you're just with the people in your family, your friends or whatever all the time. So if you have an idea, you might talk talk about it with your friends or family and eventually think about starting a business together. Like, is there, do you have any thoughts to share, I guess, on that? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of people thought like, we were crazy for all working together. It was like my brother, my ex-husband, and I. that's not why we got divorced. Um, although it makes a good story. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's not. It's the other right. stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think that... Uh, you know, Michael and I were always close as kids, but, and, and then as we got older, we, you know, we all, we went our separate ways. We got married and we didn't see each other that much. And Dry Bar actually like became this like, you know, place for us to be like close again. And we, you know, granted we kind of revert back to little kids when we're together and like we used to have to get separated in board meetings because we were like being really silly and Michael would do like stupid shit that would make me laugh and it was like (laughs) you know but it was fun and we we shared an office for a long time together too which is really just because it was fun and we liked hanging out together and we would learn things like he'd learn so much about hair and I'd learned about business and it was this great you know way to to be together. Who learned more about what? I don't know. He knows a lot about <laughs> hair, probably. Like, can he do? Can he, no, I don't oh. think so. I don't think he could do hair, but he knows more than like your typical straight guy, you okay. know? Okay. Um, but anyway, and, and sometimes I would hear him on the phone and he'd get off and I'd be like, wait, what? What was that? And he'd explain it to me and or vice versa. So it was a really cool thing. And it really like enabled us to actually be around each other and right. see each other. And we liked that and we liked working together. But the reason I think it worked was like I mentioned earlier, it was like I knew hair and he didn't, he knew business and I didn't. So we were constantly learning from each other and we weren't, and it was this, and with like Cam, you know, my ex-husband, he knew like the creative side. So everybody had their lanes. Not too much opportunity to like step on each other's toes. Yeah. It was like very clearly defined what everyone's like strengths and weaknesses were. And so it, if there wasn't like a lot of stepping on toes, and I would say that's probably the biggest piece of advice I'd give anybody going into business with anybody is like, who's doing what? If everybody like wants to be like the star and like we knew that like I was going to be the face of this brand because it was my idea and it was like, I was a mom and a hairstylist and like when my brother and Cam were bald, it was like, they that doesn't make sense. You know, it was like, it made the most sense on many levels to put me out yeah. there as like the front person and that just... And, and so you Although have, you could spin the ball thing in terms of like could. saying like, you know, I wish I had that hair. So like, let's keep it, let's keep it nice, you know? Well, but that's the thing. It's like, you know, figuring out what, you know, what everybody's role is and being really right. clear about that. And it, what, what's interesting now is like with, with Meredith, my partner, Beckon and Quill, she's the jewelry designer. And it's an, in, it's an interesting partnership because I'm, you know, more well known than her because of what I done. And she's, but she's a designer and she's like, she's kind of the talent now in the situation. And I put up the money and she has sweat equity, which is also kind of fun and full circle based on like where I started with mm-hmm. my brother. Um, but you know, it's like, she really, her job in, in this partnership is like to make, she makes the jewelry, she comes up with ideas and then she bounces it off of me. But I'm like really helping like fuel this business forward 
And it's like, that is, we're, it's very clear. I'm not trying to make jewelry. I'm not trying to like micromanage her. It's like, that's what she does. And I think that's like, and, and we, we were friendly before, but we, we didn't know each other. We, we basically spent like a year getting to know each other before we decided to really take the plunge and do this, which was an important year. Um, but you know, I think that's the thing. It's like, make sure everybody's very clear on what they do and what they do well and what they don't do well. And you know, there's, there's just things that like, Meredith isn't good at that. I'm like, right. we're like, you shouldn't be doing that. And she's like, yeah, no, you're right. I shouldn't, you know? And like, I'm not going to be making jewelry. And those are, those are very, very important conversations to have up front. And if you end up in business with somebody and you guys both kind of have the same skill set, then that's like a recipe for disaster in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And obviously self-awareness is a big mm -hmm. trait for founders and entrepreneurs, for, for anybody really, but it, it, it is really important if you're sort of building something um, to be able to, I guess, make it successful. And so you mentioned, you know, having this sort of ignorance is bliss thing back then when you were first starting dry bar, like not really knowing what's possible, right? Like mm -hmm. let's just start, open up one location and See I'll be happy happens. if it does well, you know, you yeah. don't know it's going to blow yeah. up. Uh, literally. Um, and so I guess in this case now, and uh, you know, with starting a new business and kind of going back to that, that stage, but now you know so much, now you know what's possible. Like how do you sort of, um, I guess, t like talk to yourself in terms of as a, you know, as a founder again, like of a new business, what are the things that you're telling yourself and how are you approaching it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, you know, I've, I've learned a lot from the dry bar years and I think that has really like uniquely prepared me for like all this other stuff. And it's like, I, you know, I mean, even now in this, in all of my new businesses, like I use, I mean, I made so many great relationships and so much networking and, you know, and, and, and respect from people that I'm like, you know, I, 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 I utilize all of that stuff and all of those learnings and all, you know, we, in all of our businesses, you know, to, to look back and, and figure out like things to do differently and what we did right and what we did wrong. I think it's largely like why Brittany, who's our, who's my co-founder of, and of Squeeze and CEO of Squeeze, you know, it's like, she has the knowledge of like what worked in dry bar and what didn't. And we largely use that, you know, to, to inform our businesses now, you know, and, and, and make sure that we're like not making the same mistakes that we made back then. Yeah. I mean, after achieving this success with dry bar and kind of being at this point in your life, what are the things that make you genuinely happy? Like what are the things that genuinely excite you? And when you wake up and you're going about your day, I mean, what are those hmm. things? I mean, what are the things that run through your head? I mean, what, I don't know. That's yeah. I mean, I think that it's a good question. It's like, obviously like I've had a lot of, well, not obviously, but I've had a lot of personal like growth over the last three or four years having gone through a divorce and I'm on like kind of the other side of that now. And, but so, you know, I mean, I think I really value like you know, finding love again. And I, you know, and, and I think that's like a really big deal for me, but also like, um, which I think has always been there for me. It's like opportunity. Like I, I feel really lucky that I get, I mean, really lucky and feel so like, I can't, I wish I could think of a better word than lucky, but like, you know, the opportunities that come to me still all the time. It's so cool. And it's like always like, I love creating things and I love creating those opportunities and I love coming up with ideas. And it's like, my brain is just kind of always like, I'm such a like problem solver, figure it out kind of brain where I'm like, 
what else can we do? And what can we do with this? And what can we do that? And I love that. And I get really excited, you know, about that. We just had just this morning, like a touch base of like some ideas that we have with Beckett and Quill and, and even like, you know, Adrian's working on this thing that's going, that we're doing at the end of the month in Austin. And I like, I like, I like like figuring out how to like make something bigger and create something else around something, you know? And I think that, you know, creating opportunity, having opportunities, like I, I really love all that stuff. And, and it's, you know, it feels like to me, which again is what I feel so grateful for is that like, I, I get a lot of those opportunities come my way and I create a lot of them too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, what kind of is exciting for me now. And it's like, and I remember, (laughs) I remember feeling like that with Drybar you know, once we started to see some real success and I would get like these crazy opportunities. Like when someone called me up and asked me to be a guest shark on Shark Tank, I was like, really? (laughs) You know? And it was so exciting. And then like being on the cover of a magazine, I mean, just so many. And I also remember when like I got a call that like Vogue was sending somebody in to do a blowout in the early (laughs) days. And I was like, Vogue? You know, I mean, then there's, I mean, if I were to sit here and tell you how many times things like that have happened, which like to some people would be a big deal and some people wouldn't. Um, But I, I think that's like what gets me like the most excited is like, you know, what's around the corner and there's always like something new and fun around the corner. Some things come my way and some things I create. Um, but I love that like creativeness that happens. When you were that little girl in, you know, South Florida, I mean, could you have ever imagined this? <laughs> no. And if you were to talk to my, my mom passed away a couple of years ago, but my dad, you know, it's like, and you know, even my mom was alive. It was like, they were like, I mean, still, like probably a month ago, my dad's like, who knew? <laughs> Little Ali. You know, it's still this like thing in my family yeah. of like, huh, we never would have imagined, you know? And I really, like I mentioned, I really was this like, and it's so different who I was then to who I ultimately became, which I think right. is really shocking. And like my dad gets such a kick out of it <laughs> that like, he's like, I just, you know, like when I tell him what like people offer me to come and speak at something, he's like, no way. I'm like, <laughs> I know I can't believe it either, but it's true. You know, it's like, it's just so funny, you know, and awesome. And, you know, and, um, you know, and I, and I like to, I really like to like, you know, give back. Like I will, I will do an interview with any like high school or college student. And I get asked a lot to do that. And it's like, when I was, you know, growing up, there wasn't a lot of like female entrepreneurs Mm. or what, and obviously like there's so many now and it's so awesome, but you know, so I like to really try to give back in as many ways as I can, you know, to help like form the next generation. Mm -hmm. It's it's just, your story is just a great testament to, you know, Every kid that is mm-hmm. now no longer a kid, and or or every kid now that you know where they are in the present moment doesn't mean they're going to end up that way. Whether they were born into a family that doesn't have mm-hmm. wealth, or or does, or they they you know have several different jobs and they're confused about their life, and then mm-hmm. they're thirty years old, and then finally they're like, oh shit here's an idea and I'm going to pursue it. Yeah. Right. You, you just can't you predict those things. Gonna you just come. don't know when it's going to come. You don't know when it's going to hit you. You know, it's like yeah, I mean, we just sometimes you don't know. You could be driving and you're like, wait, totally. you know, and have that moment. And you're like, I'm just going to do it. And you built up that muscle. Yeah. Right. I think the key is build that muscle, like mm-hmm. through your life, like focus on just building experiences if you can. Yeah. And I think it's like paying attention and, you know, I was 35 when we started Dry Bar. I was like, and and I wasn't like unhappy in my life, and I wasn't like waiting for that big thing. Like the way my life turned out, 
you know, was, is like amazing and I feel really lucky for it. And I, but I wasn't like unhappy where my life was before that. I was just, I mean, I knew that I wanted to keep doing more and I'm still like that. I, I want to keep doing more and I'm doing other things and I'm, you know, excited and who knows what will, what will become, what, what what's around the next corner. Right. And that, I love that. Like I love right. kind of not knowing and just kind of like keeping down the path of what I love and mm. seeing what comes of it. It's just crazy to think back and like, Dry bar is like 10, 11 years old. You know, it's like, it that's crazy. it. Like, that's all that it took. Like, and you're like, oh shit, a decade passed by so fast. It, it really feels like a hundred years. But then you look yeah. back and you're like, I just built dry bar. You yeah. know, it's like, how, how wild is that? Like, well, and I remember like walking in New York City was years ago, you know, obviously pre pandemic. And I remember like, I, I love to walk when I'm in New York and I lived in New York for so long. And I remember like, I walked across the city. It was like a long walk. And I think I had passed like two or three dry bars and I was like holy those are mine that is so weird you know and they were packed and yeah it's a trip I mean it's such a trip that it's like you know and sometimes it's like oh some people haven't heard of dry bar and whatever I remember like in my mind I like compared it to like Nordstrom I'm like everybody just knows what Nordstrom is and that's really cool I'm like you know we have more I think we have more locations actually than Nordstrom and it's like and it's like it's just yeah it's all very surreal it really is surreal and yeah and i you know it's and like i said it was it was definitely a little bit of luck but a lot Mm. of like kind of the stars aligning and a lot of hard work and execution and michael used to always say this is ours to mess up Mm -hmm. you know it's like that was part of why we started hiring people because it was like we could we could implode and we could really fuck this thing up if we don't like do it right you know Mm -hmm. it's like how do we do it make sure we do it right sure so. Well, I'm sure we could sit here and talk for hours, but <laughs> you know, obviously your story is incredible and I hope that those that are listening, um, they just keep doing what they're doing and that they're just authentic and they do things that, in, they, that they enjoy and that truly excites them. And I think that one day, yep. if it's meant to be, it'll be, if it's not meant to be, then it's okay. Like, I think the one lesson that we both learned is that not every, through this podcast, we're like 200 episodes, I think in at this point, um, I mean, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to be successful. Totally. I mean, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to be happy. You probably will be happier if you're not an entrepreneur. You're probably a lot more successful at times yeah. if you're not an entrepreneur. But there's just it just happens. Like yeah. you can't force it. Yeah. And those that do don't end up on this show. Yeah, so. you you really can't force it. You know, and so you know, I mean, I like I I mentioned, I was an assistant in a lot of different realms in my life, and I liked being like the number two. I liked that role. You know, and then it just. It ended up changing one day, you know. So I think the key is like to be ambitious, but don't tie your happiness to some sort of end result. Yeah. Like, and just, I mean, totally. it's, it's cliche, but like, enjoy the journey. Like, even if, totally. See, it's, it's, I don't want to say even if it doesn't work out that way, like, you know, you, you're still going to be happy because you want to be ambitious and never sort of settle. But I guess you want to tie it your happiness to different things. Well, just I think even, it's like, even having the privilege to be ambitious and to go after yeah, your dreams for is, sure. is huge. I mean, it's like trust your path, you mm, know, and that's yeah. always like my, that's always what comes up for me. It's like, just keep doing what you love, keep trying. And then if it's, it, you know, if you're like, you know, and I, there's, there's a lot of jobs I didn't like doing and there was jobs that I didn't get and things that I wish that I got that I didn't right. get. And it's like, it was all part of it. Obviously, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it is like part of the journey. Like, just keep on at it, you know? Amazing. Well, thanks, Ellie. Yeah. Great. Thanks, you guys. This is fun. <laughs>